Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine. But anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA plus rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts on our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is John Partridge, one of the UK's busiest and most popular actors. As well as a star of stage and screen, he has also released his own music, acted as a telly judge and starred in many a reality TV show, including his victory on Celebrity Masterchef and his turn on Celebrity Big Brother. On TV, he is best known for his portrayal of Christian Clark in EastEnders, an openly homosexual character who was an inspiration to many. John was once named Entertainer of the Year at the Stonewall Awards, and he has toured theatrically in countless much-loved productions, including Cats, Cabaret, Lacage Au Fol, and Everybody's Talking About Jamie. John is openly gay. So now let's say, John Partridge, welcome to A Gay Old Time. Hello, sir. How the devil are you? All the better for hearing you, young man, as ever. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. There is so much to talk about with you. Star of stage, screen, you've done so many iconic things throughout your career. And I'm going to say this right now, John Partridge, I think that here in the UK, you are one of our best love actors. Well, that is very, very kind of you to say. A jack of all trades and a master of none, as my mother used to, as my mother always used to tell me, to keep my feet very, very firmly on the ground. But you know what? I think she was right. I have to say, I kind of do a lot of things, um, all and um, n- none of them very well. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. I think you're very good at everything you do. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to talk about little Johnny Partridge. There he is at an early age. Um, Were there feelings of like queerness at that point in your life? I mean, now we see this fabulously confident gay man back then in the early days. You know, what was little Johnny Partridge like? I always feel kind of guilty about the tag of being sort of a gay role model. I mean, I don't sort of suffer from it as much now, but when I first sort of had my first flush of profile, shall we say. Obviously, I was playing a gay character and I was catapulted into that idea of somehow becoming a spokesperson or being this role model for the LGBT, as it was then, community. And I always kind of struggled with it because as a young person, as a very, very, very young gay person, and I mean sort of, you know, I I knew about my gayness from four, five Six And although I come from a very, very working class background, you know, the classic two up, two down houses back to back from Radcliffe, Manchester, you know, I would run up and down the ginnels and the yards of Radcliffe in my mum's dressing gowns and her shoes with makeshift crowns on my head and nobody batted an eyelid. I didn't know 
that that meant that I was queer or gay. I just knew that I liked to kiss little boys, and I did. I kissed Philip Bennett when I was five at his fifth birthday party, and I dared him. I said, I bet you don't dare. And he was the roughest boy in the school, Philip Bennett. He was the boy that people were frightened of. He was really rough. He would knock you out. He would punt. You know, he, he really was the typical little rough kid from a rough town. And I was at his birthday party and I dared him. Uh, see, I've always liked a bit of rough, you see. <laughs> I dared him. I dared him in his birthday party. I said, I bet you don't dare kiss a boy. And he was like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I was like, right. And I did. And I made him kiss me behind the, in his bedroom, behind his door. And that was at five. But, and I didn't know what it was. Um, I just knew that I liked boys and I was never afraid of it. I was never afraid to be gay or queer or different. And my family, even though they must have been very aware and very afraid of it, did not make me feel afraid of it either. Now, it wasn't necessarily spoken about. You know, I my father passed when I was young, but I do remember having a conversation with him when I was like 13, when we were playing snooker at the con club. And when I tried to explain that I was gay, he just kept telling me that I was theatrical. And that was his way of sort of, I know what you're saying, but I'm telling you that I'm going to call it theatrical. And I was kind of cool with that. But so I always kind of felt bad because I didn't have this sort of tortured coming out as a lot of young gay people go through this excruciating deliverance of their gayness, of their gay selves. You know, I just never had that. And it sort of left me with this weird shame about it, isn't it? I, isn't it stupid? You know, most people carry the shame of being queer. I carry the shame of sort of it not being, just not being a big deal, not be, and not being a big deal for me, you know, being gay, I always say being gay, contrary to public belief, you know, is not the first thing I think about myself. I know it's the first thing loads of other people think about me, but it comes very, very, very low down on my list. It always did. Even when I was a kid, you know, it wasn't the first thing I thought about me, you know, and it's still and it still isn't. It's something that I like doing, obviously. Yes, I love men. I love everything about them. I love everything that it entails. But I love so many other things too. And I love so many other things about me too, not just my queerness, you know. So that was something in my really, really long, um, long-winded answer to your very, very first question to me. It, it, that's what little gay Johnny was like, he was all of those things. He was dressing up. He was outrageously camp, not faced by it and certainly not scared of it and certainly not scared of the implication of it either. Bearing in mind, this was the, you know, mid seventies, you know, very, you know, uh, I was born in 71, you know, so, so I'm talking like 76, 77. So it wasn't like, you know, it was still very much, you know, your gay representation was, you know, John Inman and, you know, Lionel Blair, if you were lucky, you know, there was no, so that's what it was. But I knew that that's what I was, you know, I knew that I was a, a little John Inman. <laughs> 
Well, it sounds like little Johnny Partridge was a very happy child. I mean, were you theatrical at school? I mean, were you a good student at school or were you a bit of a tear away? Did you enjoy school? Was it an escape? I was a good student at school till I left to go to the Royal Ballet School. Because um, So I'm talking like till the age of nine, I was a good student. I was slightly disruptive because I get bored very quickly. Um, I've always gotten bored very quickly, even now when I'm working or I'm doing a show, you know, the fun bit for me is the first six weeks. Once I've had the press night, I'm bored. I want to move on. I hate the repetition. I, I can't bear repetition, which makes it really, really difficult for somebody like me to sustain, <laughs> you know, to do, to do a, a tour or a show, you know, really after that press night, I'm like, right, what's next? I've done it now. So uh, but but I was a good student until I realized that it wasn't going, I wasn't going to need it. As soon as I realized, as soon as I got to the Royal Ballet School, so as soon as I got to nine and I got to the Royal Ballet School and I could take a look around the room and realized pretty quickly that I could do it. Re- I re- No, not necessarily ballet, but I realized pretty quickly what I had and I knew that academia was not going to be it. So even when I went away to sort of vocational school, I was very disruptive in the classroom, but you put me in the studio. Once I put a pair of tights on and a pair of shoes, I was all in full out 110%. But sitting down in the classroom, because I knew, you know, I was like, what do I need to, what do I need to do this for? Now, apart from like French, because all my teachers spoke French and I went to the Paris Opera at a very young age for two years on an exchange program. So I knew that speaking French was good. I knew that speaking languages was good for classical ballet, Russian, French, Latin. I was down with all of that. But as far as like, you know, maths, history, geography, I was extremely, extremely disruptive. And unfortunately, that's why I was expelled from four schools. But that's another podcast. <laughs> four. Four schools. Wow, that's a, that is a whole other story, isn't it? That's incredible. You naughty boy. Yeah, I love it. Um, but listen, I, but not from anything major. Like I didn't start fires or anything. It was just <laughs> for pushing boundaries. I was about, it was just pushing boundaries. It, it wasn't, it was just naughty things, but you know, it wasn't anything major, but it, well, I say it wasn't anything major, but you know, maybe it was, but it, it, as far as Come I was on, spill concerned. The tea. It was, what was it? What was it? Well, there were all sorts of things, but I mean, the last time I got expelled from school, it's probably slightly controversial, you know, and I was sort of having, a relationship with my house master uh, and bearing in mind I was I was young so uh, you know and I, I was young I was you know I was 14 okay. so you know you could you could look at that in many ways you know now in, in, in today's culture society you absolutely look, you could look at that in many ways I don't look at it like that perhaps I should but I don't and in and you know, really, it was kind of a cover up. Really, it was kind of to shut the situation up uh, and to to kind of shut me up. But it, the thing is, it didn't bother me because I was, you know, I, I at that time I was fully participating in it. But you know, I was fourteen, so you know, you can make of that what you will. But you didn't personally feel that it was abusive to you. You didn't feel that yourself. No, I, 
No, I felt that I was, you know, I mean, bearing in mind, you know, you know, 18 months later, I'm working in Cats in the West End and I'm fully, I'm a fully paid up human being in, you know, I'm a fully fledged adult working in a very adult environment. And to me, it, you know, it, it's no different to that then, you know, bearing in mind, this was the mid eighties. It was a very different time. And I don't think I was the only one, <laughs> you know, I don't think that this story is particularly unique to me. Um, but you know, you could look at it very differently now. And I'm sure people, you know, listening to this might think of that very differently now, but you know, I wasn't scarred by it or, 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 or feel that I was damaged by it in any way. It's just what it was. And I'm sure that many young queer people have at that time of their lives, 14, 15, venture into relationships with people that are much older, especially, especially in the mid eighties when there wasn't necessarily access to, you know, social media or, 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 or apps or ways of finding out where other queer people are or where they go. You know, I mean, most, you know, I was going to clubs in London at 14, as were lots of other queer people. And it wasn't, you know, it was not strange and it was not unusual. So, you know, I just put it in that category, really. You and I grew up um, roughly around the same period. I mean, I know you're a few years younger than me, which shows from looking at your lovely face. But it's like, you know, I, I used to go ballroom dancing when I was a kid and I gave it up because of peer pressure and the fact that, you know, on the way to ballroom dancing, I used to get bullied. There was like kids that used to be like, oh, you queer, you know, you're doing that. It's puffy, throwing me in the local brook, all of that kind of stuff. You know, you were doing ballet possibly one of the most stereotypical, in inverted commas, queer things that a young person could do. Was there any bullying? Was there any kind of like people throwing names at you? Because it seems like, you know, you, you, you were a very happy child. So was there other people saying, you can't do that? You know, little boys don't do that. Well, I only um, started doing ballet when I went to the Royal Ballet School. So because my dad would not let me do ballet, I think for fear of that, I had an amazing, I had, I have an amazing sister. My sister is, you know, seven years older than me. And, you know, those days, like I say, in the mid seventies, before I went away to boarding school at nine, you know, we all played outside, we all played in the streets, you know, and if I, if there was a whiff, Anything like that, my sister would come out and be on them like a ton of bricks. So I knew, you know, where we lived and where we hung out and the kids in our street, there was, I was very, very, very protected. Plus with my sister being seven years older, she had a group of friends that were much older. So, you know, all the other kids knew if they messed with me, they'd have to deal with the older kids, you know, of which my sister was the top of that tree, you know? So I never worried about things like that. I did, however, get bullied when I went away to school, really bullied, both physically, emotionally, because I was good. And other boys did not like that. And I was bullied ferociously, probably from the ages of like, not because I was queer per se, because I went to, you, because of the types of schools that I was at. But from sort of 11, maybe from like 11 to sort of 12 and a half, I was ferociously bullied. And then I, and then from being 12 and a half, that's when I really, really became what I would call or what I used to call myself a very, very militant queer person. Even then at that age, at 12 and a half, that's when I was like, right, I am not putting up 
with this bullshit anymore. And then I really stepped into my gayness and I rubbed it in your face and I used it as a way to shut the room down. And it, 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 there was a, a precociousness to it, but it scared people. So I kind of became this sort of very, very punk, queer kid at school. And I would frighten the living daylights out of you with my queerness. And that's, but I wouldn't have done that had I not felt, you know, had I not been backed into a corner because that, and that's kind of me. Sometimes I can have a tag of being maybe a bit prickly, but I will never bring anything to your door. You know, I'm really not. I really won't. But if you keep poking or if you bring something to me, but, you know, there is not a cat in house chance I'm going to allow you to to diminish me like that. And in some ways, that's when I really turned. That's when I really turned a corner because I knew once I went away to school, all my sort of support mechanisms fell away in the sense that I really, not that I lost touch with my family and lost touch with myself, but I knew I had to sort of, I knew I was going to have to do it on my own. I went to a school at a time, you know, like I say, I come from a very, very working class background. I do not come from money. I went to schools that were absolutely opulent. I, I, I had full scholarships to go to all these schools that I kept getting kicked out of. They were extremely grand and, and come and, all of the students, bar say I would say three of us, came from money, and I don't and I don't mean a little money. I mean a lot. And I knew I knew that I had to change. Sounds an awful word, but you know I I knew that I was very different. And at that time in the mid eighties, sort of regionalism was not a thing. There was no Terry Christian on the TV. There was no. You know, I talked funny, I sounded funny, and I knew I had to change. And it was so, it was all around at that time that I sort of thought, okay, what am I, how am I going to navigate this? How am I going to do that? And so that's what I kind of did. And it all came at that same time, the bullying, me realizing that, okay, I come, I, I come from a social, completely sort of social, economic, I'm, I'm different. What am I going to, I'm also queer. What am I going to do? How am I going to kick out of that? Uh, and, and, and that was really sort of my reckoning. And that's when I sort of really, really worked out a lot of things. Were you dating at that time as well? I mean, are you one of the platinum gays and never did the girl thing? Definitely the girl thing. Always the girl thing. And even kind of quite late in my queerness, even though I was very, very queer, I always saw girls, but I didn't, I I always told them I was gay. So, you know, there was never, I was never this sort of, there was never any whiff of me saying I'm bisexual or I like, you know, I was always, I am definitely gay, but if we want to do this, are you, you know, you, I'll do it as long as you know that I'm queer. So, uh, and I did that probably up into my, probably into my twenties. Well, we're talking sex when you say if you want to do this. We're talking sex. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, I, but I was always very straight up about it. I was always very straight up about saying I'm not bisexual. It's not that. You know, we can have sex and we can have a relationship, but you need to know that I'm queer. Uh, So it was, I know, and I'm I'm aware that that sounds quite unusual, but it's not that I, and it's not that I particularly enjoy, I love the company of women. I've always enjoyed the company of women. You know, I I, I love women and having sex with women um, was something that I could do, you know, but I knew 
I didn't fancy them, but I could still have sex with them. Were you having sex with guys at the same time or not? Absolutely having sex with Nothing was that serious. Nothing was, monogamy was not big on my list when I was a young person. You mentioned earlier as well about coming out and not having to really have that coming out story that many young queer people do. Um, it sounds like, though, and you mentioned about your father and his reaction, but your mo- mother, I mean, I'm assuming she she was happy all the way and it was like, live your life, do what you need to do. My mom was an extraordinary woman in the sense that my mother knew everything about me, but I don't think she really listened that hard. <laughs> I don't think, she, I think my mum loved me so much well, not, 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 not that I think that she loved me so much. My mother loved me so much that there was nothing I could say to my mother that would make her feel any different. But, I, but it, by the same token, I don't think she ever fully, compre- fully took in what I was saying. So my mum always knew that I was gay because I'd told her a thousand times. And then when I had my first serious boyfriend... I think I was, I'd been in Cats for about a year, so I must have been about 17, 17 and a half. And my dad had just passed away. And I'd met this guy in, what was that club in Mile End called? At Benji's. Ooh. Do you remember a club called yes. Benji's in yes, Mile End? Benji. So she used to be on a Sunday night, used to be on a Sunday night in London in Mile End. And my dad had died. And I'd gone to this club and I was absolutely, I must have been 17, I hadn't turned 18 yet. And I was absolutely bladdered and I'd fallen off a bar stool and this guy had picked me up and he'd taken me home. Um, He got me home, put me to bed and left and just left his name and and left his name and a number on on the side of the thing. And I'd called him and I called him the next day and I was living in Finson Park then. He was living at a player in Manor House. And his name was Hugh, Hubert, and he was a social worker and he was 20, he was like nine and a half, 10 years older than me. So he must've been like 26, nearly 27. And he, a black, black guy. And he was so very, very different from, from at that point, from anybody in my world, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do drugs. He just loved to dance and go out and he was huge. I mean, back then I was tiny. I was like some little wafy dancer and he was massive he was this great big smiling you know as black as the darkest night you know i used to say he used to he used to he just was like my black he was just like a prince like that princely black and i remember thinking god i've got my mom's gonna come down i've got she's got to meet him and, you know, my mom came down i said i've got somebody you've got to meet and she bought me this washing machine. She bought me a washing machine. And she came into this washing machine and be living in. And she came into the apartment. And, and I went up into the door. And she, and she was putting this stuff in the, like putting the, plumbing in the washing machine, basically. And she thought he was the, she thought he was obviously had come to plumb in the washing machine. And so he was plumbing the washing machine and was sat in the thing and sat in the thing. And then she'd gone out again. She gave him like, she gave him a pound note. She took, took a pound note out and she put it in his hand. She was like, thanks very much like that. And he was like, I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh no, she thinks he's like from, you know, she thinks she's his boy. And I was like, oh mom, this is like my boyfriend, Hugh. And she was like, she, for, for the lot, she was like, sorry. And I was like, this is my boyfriend. This is Hugh. This is my boyfriend. And she kept just saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I was like, I was like, mom, I'm gay. You do know I'm gay, don't you? I was like, you know, I'm gay. And she was like, and she had, and she didn't. The point being is she, she didn't know I was gay or, 
or she was acting like she did. And this is what I mean. I think this was like the first time she's actually, she'd actually registered what I actually meant. And I had many, many, many occasions with my mum like that. And this is what I mean. I like she, I think she just loved me so much that nothing I said ever sort of went in. She know it never really registered, but that being said, it wasn't a thing. And then it was gone. Even though I knew that she was kind of going, Oh my God, this is, what are we going to do? So in one way it was, it was a blessing, but in some ways it meant that you had to keep repeating. You kept, you kept having these sort of situations where you thought I, you, where you expected everything to sort of be understood and it never really was. Um, and I had that, that sort of boyfriend awkwardness three times. I've only had three major serious male relationships in my life, you know, and one of those being the one that I've been in for the last 20 years. And I would have that again and again and again with her in a similar sort of way, where, the, where I'd say, okay, well, this is Hugh, or this is Hendrik, or this is Stephen, or this is Jonathan. And she'd be like, uh, so you're doing that? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is it. This is what I do, you know. So I don't, I, I don't know what that was. I, I really, really don't know what that was. But that was the truth of it. But the plus side of that is that she was obviously accepting, even if maybe she wasn't that demonstrative about it. She was accepting, but it always kind of made me see. The funny thing about it is, is when my mum was very, very ill. When my mum was really, really ill, and we'd moved her out of her home because your mum had Alzheimer's, didn't she? Bless her. My mum had Alzheimer's, and she lived with us for a very, very long time. And then when we couldn't do it anymore, and that's the reason why I left EastEnders and all of that sort of stuff, because I just couldn't be going out of the house at that time in the morning and coming home at night. I, I just couldn't do it. But when we'd moved her out of where of, of our home and put her into a, a care home I'd gone and I'd seen her and I'd gone with John who is my you know as you know my husband she'd forgotten who John was and I and I said to her I was like you know well, it's John's my husband you know you know John my husband and we had this horrible and it's it I hate thinking about it because she told me that I wasn't gay and that you know and that it was disgusting you know, and that I was disgusting and that I would burn in the eternal flame. It was rough. It was really, it was really rough because she'd never ever said anything like that. And, and in some ways it, it made me think, is that what, is that why? Is that what she really thought? Did she really think? that it was disgusting, you know, and that I was disgusting. And was that her way of dealing with it, just pretending that it wasn't true or that she was blocking it? I don't know. I've talked about this with my sister so many times and she was like, of course it's not, you know, but I don't know. It, it, it was so visceral and so unbelievably cruel and hurtful. And it, you know, and it's something that I'd never experienced from my family at all. And it was awful. It was horrible. You can hear it in your voice, John. Let's let's talk about something happier. Let's talk about you at the age of 16, moving into the West End in Cats, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. 
it gets no bigger. I mean, that really is. I mean, when I think of Johnny Partridge, that's the first thing that I think of, you in Cats, because it's become synonymous with John Partridge. That must have been a moment for a little gay boy of 16 to be in the West End, dancing on stage with all of these fantastic people in a fantastic production, and I dare say having a fantastic time. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But I didn't know it at the time, because at the time... I just thought, well, this is it, isn't it? This is what I'm going to do. You don't have the nerve. You don't have the fear, especially when you're that young. I mean, I was 15 when I was auditioning for it. And I remember going to, turning up to the Blackpool Opera House. I was 15 and I was number 537. I was number 537 to walk into the doors, you know, because those days that's the amount of people that would turn up to an open call. There would be thousands of people. And I remember walking into that audition room and looking at those hundreds of people on the stage. And I was like, I have got this. I am going to smash this. And I walked onto that stage and I knew, I just knew I could look around the room and I knew I could do it, you know, because I'd trained I had trained since nine years old. I went to the Royal Ballet School at nine. I went to the Paris Opera at 12. I was at the Northern Ballet at 14. I danced on the Opera House at the Coliseum. I'd done major, major ballets. I'd taken every classical exam that you could take. And I was ready to walk. That was my time. And I was like, I'm going to walk onto this stage and I am going to not even break a sweat. And I did. I walked onto that stage and I didn't, it wasn't even difficult for me. It was not even hard work. I was like, I am so, and that was, it makes me, it, you know, there's, it's so easy to be inspired, isn't it? By a piece of music or by watching a film or, you know, going to see a show. It is so, so hard to self-inspire. It just is to be, to have that sort of belief, to have that, you know, and, and in those days at that time, I had that kind of absolute self-belief. And when I have dark days, I definitely go into myself and I pull that out of myself. If I'm really nervous before a performance or if I'm not really rehearsed enough or I've got something really major coming up that I want, that is what I do. I go back inside myself and I pull that boy out of me. Not that I took it for granted. I didn't, but I knew that I put the work in. I'd been training all my life for this and I was going to go on that stage and I was going to get it. And I did <laughs> because I would, because I was ready. I was that determined and I was that ready and I, and I knew it. And it's, you know, it's like anything, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's like the magic of Christmas. If you can only hang on to it, <laughs> if you can only hang on to, you, you know, to those moments, but in some ways you can, you know, you can, we, we lose the ability to do that as we, uh, as we age and as life kicks the crap out of us, you, you know, but if you can hang on and also if you're lucky enough to have had that, if you're lucky enough, to have had those moments, you know, and it, that, that sort of self-belief and determination I had as, as a kid, 
you know, is something that I am always grateful for. And it's what got me there. It's what catapulted me. But I wasn't on my own. There were a couple of us at that time. There were a couple of young people at that time that were hoofing around. So it wasn't like, once again, it wasn't necessarily that it, it was unique to me. It was a different time. It was a different schooling system. You, you had different opportunities then as young people. I think it's really, really hard as a young person now to even know what you want to do. You know, I'm lucky. I always knew what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to dance. I knew that's what I wanted to be. And I put my heart and soul into it, rightly and wrongly, to get to that point. The trouble is, <laughs> the trouble starts once you get something at that age that you've dreamed all your life for and you're that young and you go, okay, well, now I've done it. So now what? <laughs> now what do I do? You know, I dreamed of being in Cats at that point and then you're 16 and you've done it. Then what do you do? You know, that that's when you got to sort of, you know, finding a new dream <laughs> is not so easy. <laughs> you know, it's not so easy. That self-confidence at 16 was like your superpower. When was the sort of like crash and burn as far as the confidence was concerned? My dad passed away when I was sort of 17, about 17 and a half, 18. And I, I know this now as I've gone back and had other experiences in my life and I've gone back and looked at it. I mean, at the time I didn't put the two and two together, but when I, my dad was the reason that I danced, you know, my dad was 51 when I was born. Uh, and that sounds like nothing now, you know, that, but then in the seventies it was, uh, you know, he was much older than the other dads and, you know, so on a Saturday and a Sunday afternoon, we weren't going to be kicking a football around the back garden, you know, not that I wanted to mind, <laughs> but what he did, you know, but what he did do for me and more importantly with me was he would sit me down, you know, we would watch the MGMs, you know, we'd watch the, the dancing men, the singing in the rains, the on the towns, you know, at five, I had no idea who Kevin Keegan was, but as soon as Sid Cherie sashayed across the screen, I knew exactly who she was. And, and it was my dad that, gave, that was responsible for me, for my love of everything musical. And he was the, you know, he was the person that really set me off on this trajectory, even though he had reservation about it. And even though my dad never saw me dance, the only time my dad ever saw me dance was when I went into Cats. And then he passed away straight after that. So that was the only time he never saw me perform. He never came and saw me perform. I don't know why that was. And it wasn't that he didn't support me. It just wasn't that way. He just wasn't that way. But he did see me when I finally got onto that stage. And I know that he was they had this big, massive, huge party and we were sat on this, on my opening night in Cats and we were sat around a table. Uh, we sat at this big table in the Winter Gardens in Blackpool, massive table. And the, the, this guy turned around to my dad and he was, you know, obviously he was an investor in the show, an angel in the show. And he turned around to my dad and he said, have you got any money in the show? And my dad was like, you what? And he was like, uh, are you are you, an are you an angel? Are you an investor in the show? And my dad was like, what's an angel? And so he explained to me and said, well, you know, I'm an investor in the show. I've got money in the show. And my dad was like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm an angel I'm an angel in this show and he was like oh, he, read he said because and then he just looked at me and he said because I've invested in him you know, I invested in him and then my dad took my hand and we went onto the, the ballroom floor at the winter gardens and my dad waltzed around that floor with me in that winter garden it's I will never ever forget that and then he passed away six months after that I think that's kind of when so my dad passing away you know I couldn't cry at the funeral I didn't cry at the funeral um I didn't even really feel it. It didn't 
my life didn't change. I thought, or so I thought, my life didn't change. I never really saw him anyway. Um, I'd been away at boarding school all this time. I wasn't very close to him. You know, it wasn't a huggy, close, warm, lovey relationship. And I thought, well, so he's gone. Does it? Does it? I, I, or so I thought. But really, that's when that little sort of fire in me. You know, it did dim. Bearing in mind, it was also as well. Then, you know, then I'm 18. Then I'm really stepping into myself. Then I'm sort of like experimenting a lot with life, with drugs, with, you know, I'm also living on my own, you know, in the late 80s in London. There's an awful lot of distraction. There's an awful lot of things going on. You know, we're on the back end of, you know, of icebergs and AIDS and clubs, the birth of ecstasy, summer of love. I mean, I, there was a lot going on and I fully embraced that side of my life. I fully embraced the sort of the dangerous side of my life, really. You know, I was squatting. I was working in the West End, but I was living in a squat. I'm calling it a squat. I think other people might call it a crack house or something else like that. But I was working. I'm going to work every day. But when you're young and that age, you sort of have these strange resiliences to what's around you but that's when i started pushing those types of buttons and those types of boundaries and then i became kind of absent to my family and i i'm ashamed to say i went for about seven years without speaking to them not because we'd had any sort of row not because there was any sort of problem just because i was too busy i was too busy that's the only way i can sort of describe it but I was working and I was bouncing from show to show to show to show. I think through that time, through my sort of like, from the period of like sort of 16 through to 26, I think I did like 12 West End shows back to back. So it wasn't that I was sort of, you know, I always turned up to work. You know, I think I've probably only missed about 20 performances in my entire career. I mean, that's just always the way I've been. Something flipped in me, something changed in me. I knew that I was good. And I could kind of not phone it in, but I, I stopped going to class. I stopped sort of focusing on the discipline of dance and the discipline of what I, uh, of my craft. And I sort of got away with it for a long time. And I did things that probably weren't that great <laughs> in hindsight, but I'm lucky. I'm one of the very, 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 very lucky ones that lived to tell the tale because lots of my friends did not. We're talking AIDS. We're talking HIV. We're talking. We're talking death from overdosing. You, you know, this is. I'm talking from the periods of like '88 through to '94, '95. You know, a lot of my friends died. A lot of all our friends died in that time, especially in the West End. A lot of them, and I, by the grace of God, skirted around it because I was a young fool. And I acted like a fool. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't all doom and gloom. I had a bloody amazing time and did some amazing things. You know, it wasn't all awful. It was amazing, you know, but when I really think, you know, it, when I, it, there are instances within that, when I think about it now, people would never believe you. And it, the funny thing is like now, when I look at the kids now, so been doing a musical right now called everybody's talking about Jamie as you know and the kids some of, when I look at some of these kids on the show like some of these kids are 18 19 20 you know if I told them some of the things that we were doing you know when we were were they'd be horrified because the kids these days they're just not that way they are really not 
that way. Thank God that they seem to have it really kind of worked out. No, but they're kind of driven. They're driven in a way that we weren't or that I wasn't. You know, they're very much aware of, you know, they don't drink, you know, they're not doing drugs, they're not smoking, you know, they're not, you mean, I still smoke because I think it's cool. I mean, how pathetic is that? I'm 50 bloody three and I'm still like, you know, I still like to have a cheeky cigarette. It's outrageous. They, They would never do that now. The kids that you work with now, they are just not like that. If you, they knew the, the, the things that we got up to, it, they, they would be appalled. Do you think then, John, that this is why maybe you struggle with the role model tag? Because to me, you know, th- th- those kids in Jamie or, you know, all of the fabulous productions that you've done over the years, Cats, Cabaret, uh, you know, all of them, La Cage Fall, you know, people must look up to you because you're successful, you're brilliant at what, you're do- what you do, you're a powerhouse vocalist, they see you on TV, you know, you, one minute you're a judge on a reality show and the next, you're, you know, Christian Clark in EastEnders, you are ticking the role model box, even if you feel that you're not being a role model. So do you think it's because of that self-doubt that you have in yourself, maybe from certain periods in your life and the things that went on around you, that has made you feel, I don't know, almost not, not worthy to be a role model? I am proud of my longevity, Nigel. I think, you know, longevity, doing what we do, you know, it, it, it work, being in the arts is what I am proud of. And if I, I don't mind being looked as, as a role model for that. The fact that, you know, I'm going into my 39th year now doing this, working like this, working at this level. I don't mind being a role model for that, about how you sort of navigate the industry, navigate being, you know, in one year, I am a tenacious queen. I understand what perseverance is. And I do believe that the discipline that I had from my youth is what keeps me. The role model bit about the sort of lifestyle and that's when I struggle. Even now, I still make enormous mistakes. You know, I... I don't have the answers to any of that. You know, I, 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 I only have the, I know what I know. <laughs> and I guess sometimes I, you, you know, I know, I, I know too, too much of that. And, and sometimes I'm embarrassed by that as well. I think a lot of queer people of my age sort of do carry some sort of shame, some sort of survival shame, some sort of things like, well, I did all of these things. I did all of these things and some, uh, and I'm still, do you know what I mean? And I'm still, and I'm only working this out really as, as I'm talking to you right now, because it's not sort of a question I sit and ask myself very much, you know, why do I feel uncomfortable about being a sort of role model for queer people? But I, I think there is an element of that, the fact that I've managed to, because that's what it is. It's luck. You know, why have I sort of, how have I, why have I, am I living up to that then? Am I achieving all of the things that I should be achieving when I've given a pass, you know, when I've been allowed to, uh, am I doing the right things? Am I making the right choices? Am I being the best version of me, the best person, the best husband, the best friend, the best. And I think I do have a little bit of that. And I think my way to combat it or the way to push it away is to, is to not acknowledge myself in that way. 
I believe everything happens for a reason, John. And maybe one of the many reasons that you are still here and still doing your fabulous thing is you became part of gay history when you signed up to give us Christian Clark on EastEnders. Because as you mentioned, when we were growing up, it was Mr. Humphreys on TV or you would see Larry Grayson. And that was kind of the stereotype or the sort of benchmark for you know, potential queerness, because nothing was really said. Christian Clark, EastEnders, this fabulous character, and you were the person portraying that character. You have become gay history. How did you find that? Was there a pressure that you put on yourself playing that character, or was it a joy to play? And was it was it a challenge of like, okay, I've got this gay character, hurrah, let's get to it? Or was there trepidation? There was pressure in the sense that they kept saying to me that they wanted a real depiction of a gay person. This is what they kept saying. Yet when I went into the show, that wasn't what they were showing. That wasn't how they were dressing me. That wasn't how they were writing for me. Now, bearing in mind, I'd done very, very, I hadn't done any sort of continual drama at that point. I didn't really know how it worked. You know, it takes a while for you to sort of like, understand what is going on here. But then I very quickly realized that, you know, I'm being written for the people who are writing this are the majority of them are 50 year old white straight men who've got no idea of what a real in inverted commas gay person is. And even what is that anyway? They kept saying, well, we don't want it to be a stereotype. And I was like, I don't, I said, explain to me this word stereotype. I said, explain to me what you mean by that. Well, we don't want it. To, I, said, I said, you don't want somebody to be typically gay, do you? I said, but that's the T, isn't it? That's the T. What you want is someone to be gay and not too gay. And I, that's the thing that used to really wind me up. And that, you know what I mean? Because then you get away with it by saying, we don't want to skip, we don't want somebody who's like, you know, I am many shades of gay. Some days I'm real butch gay. Some days I'm like in, around the house in my Marabou slippers, singing, listening to show tunes and Barbra Streisand. <laughs> Other time I would, you know, uh, there are, uh, you know, as a gay person, I flip from one side to the other. You know, sometimes I'm going to be top. Sometimes I'm going to be bottom. Sometimes I'm going to be both. Sometimes I'm going to be, you know, and it, that type of attitude, that type of idea of what queer is, I, it really, really pisses me off. So I didn't want to swear on your podcast, but that really, really wound me up and it still winds me up. So I knew, I very quickly worked out all of that. I was like, okay, that's what this is. And I know now what this is. So I was, I, I made it my business to change him up. So I thought, right, I'm going to step into the size of my body. I'm going to change the way I dress. I'm going to, and then there was one day and I would paraphrase certain things. And then there was one day they said, we need you to go into this booth. And like, there was one line they'd given to me about going to a discotheque or something. I was like, I said, who the shit says discotheque? And I, so I changed the line to something like, you know, I've been in a sweat box in Vauxhall all night or something like that. And they went, oh, you can't say that. I said, what? Can't say what? What's, what's sweat box? What does it mean? I went, it means I've been in a sweat box. What do you think it means? Well, I don't know. Has it got some like, do you mean you've been in it? I said, you, uh, uh, so they thought, so when I would say all these things, they were like, well, that's just filth. It's horrible. I was like, I'm not saying it's not filth. I'm not saying, so then they made me go into a booth and like put all these words down and then give them the meanings, the definitions of what these words meant so that they could check 
So true. And can I ask about a role that you had in, in more recent times, Julius Caesar in, of course, Queen Cleopatra? You know, Julius Caesar, possibly one of the straightest people on earth. But there you were, a beautiful actor who happens to be queer, playing it beautifully. Did you get any comeback for that at all? But listen, here's the tea with that. So I went in for the casting and the director, Tina Gravi, amazing, BAFTA winning. She, she had no idea who I was. I turned up on the set on the first day and Tina goes to me, you know, nobody wanted you but me. And I was like, I'm just about to shoot my first nude scenes. And I was like, she, and she was like, yeah, she said, you know, you went out of the room and I was like, oh my God, that's Caesar. And they were like, you don't want him. That's like, you know, he's like John Partridge, like some puff off the TV. Like he's a queer actor. He's not going to be able to play that part. And she was like, uh, well, I'll tell you what then, you send your first choice to America and I will send my first choice to America and we'll see what Jada Pinkett Smith thinks about it. Uh, and that's what they did. They sent my tape off and they sent her tape off and she was like, uh, holy hell, we want hot Caesar. That's who it is. But that was the truth of that. That Because these were British producers. Tina didn't know. These are two British producers. They were like, he is a gay actor. This And this is the other, this is the other thing. When I first went into EastEnders, without my permission or without my, the first thing that came out in the sun, gay actor, John Partridge, 36. Now, I never gave anybody carte blanche to say anything about me, to say anything about who I am, whether I'm in, whether I'm out, whether I'm gay, whether I'm straight, whether I'm nothing. And at the time, I kind of didn't, once again, because I was kind of new to it, it didn't really bother me. But you would never write that about somebody else. Straight actor Hugh Grant. You don't say straight, not that I'm putting myself in the same bracket as Hugh Grant, but for one, that's the first person that came to my head. You just don't. Yeah, I was gay actor John Partridge. So, but once it, but the thing, what I'm trying to say about that is that type of thing sticks. It does stick. It also, it presents you, for me, coming into people's consciousness as an actor, I was always then, from then on in, gay actor John Partridge. So when you come to do other things or you come to move to other so this produced now obviously everybody knows I am a gay actor so it's it's kind of doesn't work but it does in the sense that they were like oh no he's gay actor John Partridge nobody is going to believe that he can be and I think that's <laughs> I think that's outrageous but that's as a queer actor that is what you have to that's what th those are the you know those are the hurdles that you have to kick down and you can't you know and it takes somebody else like Tina thank God to go I don't know what you're talking about and I don't care um, because I don't know who he is and I'm sure Jada Pinkett Smith is not going to know that he is gay actor John Partridge that played one queer role on TV so then I had to do my first scene my first sex scenes because you always start with the sex scenes don't you uh, and after I came off set after I came off set on that first day it was a really long day on my first day they did have the grace to come down to me and say John I just Tina's told us she told you what we'd said and we just want to come down and A apologise B we've just watched your rushes and you look it's amazing you look like a movie star. Uh, and we're really, really sorry that we spoke like that. And I hope you can, I hope you can take that uh, as it's meant. And, uh, and I hope that you can accept that we were wrong. And I was like, I'm here, I'm in the costume. Do you know what I mean? I've just had my cock out. I'm like in Morocco. I was like, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I'm all good. But that is also part of that as well. And as a queer you know, these are the things that you have to deal with as a queer actor. If you choose to, uh, well, and not that I really chose it, 
if you're out, and this is what I meant about the other, you know, I never chose, I never chose for them to out me in that way professionally. You know, they could have just written John Partridge. Yeah, I'm sure people would have worked it out pretty quick, but that was not my choice. It was not my choice to be outed in the sun in that way way people always ask me you know how far do you think we've come and how far do you think we've come in general with sort of gay rights and you know equal ma- i don't think we've come any way at all <laughs> nigel in fact i think we go backwards you know i think we take as, as the great paula abdul says you know two steps forward and three steps back my love I mean, I, I, you know as, as the great as the great paula abdul says queen paula of abdul that leads me on to a little a little fun section that I like to do on this podcast because uh, you mentioned Paula Abdul, so let's go down the song route straight away. What is the song that is guaranteed to get John Partridge on the dance floor? Oh, God, it, there are so many, but I guess one that is literally guaranteed to get me on the dance floor would probably be, it's, it's, some, it's way, way, I go way, way back, so it would probably be C.C. Peniston, finally. Tune. That's a yeah, great tune. Yeah, Mr. Right. I mean, it's, got, it's a great tune. And it reminds me of sort of, it reminds me of 1990, sort of one, 92, where I was fully in that moment, that fully early 90s movement, the sort of post-Summer of Love, the sort of post-Acid House. And that reminds me of going to clubs like Bang, up on Tottenham Court Road. Yeah, so I would say that something like that, something like CeCe Peniston's finally would be guaranteed to get me on the floor. That is a great tune. What's the best experience you've ever had in an LGBTQ plus safe space? Clubbing in the sort of, in the 80s and the 90s was, it was an amazing, in the sense that gay spaces, I think, straight people suddenly realized what gay spaces were. You suddenly, and and I think drugs were a lot to do with it. The sort of explosion of ecstasy sort of allowed straight men to sort of come into gay spaces and not feel the pressure of that. And there was, and and, and I think what also that did was it brought sort of, heterosexuals and homosexuals together in a way that, and and I know it's an awful thing to say that drugs did that, but without that sort of drug, I I think it bridged a lot of gaps. I I think it gave birth to a real sort of level of understanding that you hadn't sort of had post sort of AIDS and the post like the gay plague, gays are evil, gays are hideous, you know, we should put all the gays on an island and get rid of them. I think it brought people together in gay spaces. So when I think about heaven and bang, clubs like Crash and Trade, so I know they weren't necessarily predominantly LGBTQ places. Like I know Trade wasn't really, but it, it, it was when sort of like gay spaces really opened their doors to to straight people. And that period of my life, that sort of like 
early 90s, so I'd say like sort of like 90 through to 94, that period in those types of clubs, in those types of spaces, it was a joyous thing. And yes, we went out every weekend, but it wasn't that we just went out every weekend to get high. It's that we went out every weekend to have that sense of community, to have that sense of it was freeing and it was inclusive uh, and you could really be whoever you wanted to be you could meet the most amazing people i've got lifelong friends from that time in my life from going to those clubs from going to bang from going to trade from going to heaven at that time people that i still see now people that you know are very very much in my inner circle and it really was and i don't know you know, I don't club like that anymore. And I don't know whether that's even a thing anymore. That type of, that type of real inclusion. And it was diverse. And there were all sorts of people there, you know, there were all denominations, trans, straights, you know, and it was not a thing. I mean, now we're all so boxed up and all so even within us, you know, this, all this nonsense of LGB without the T and all, I mean, I just, I, I, I despair. I, 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 sometimes I really do. I despair about all of that. And I, I and I have no idea how that started. I, I, I just don't understand how a community like ours can exclude anybody. I just don't. And it, it, it makes me, it, it makes me so, so angry because it just feels ignorant. And I was like, when did queer people get ignorant? A God out of everybody. You know, we know more than anybody the horrors of the lack of community, the horror of being isolated, the horror of shame, the horror, you know, and yet we seem to be in a place right now where we're, you know, where we're kind of all about that. And I, I don't know about that. At that time, then in the, it was not like that. It was a joyful, joyful thing. And it's where I grew and it's where I learned and it's where I, you know, I really developed emotionally and socially. Happy times indeed. Uh, right, final question, Mr. Partridge. You are putting on a dinner party and you are able to have your five perfect dinner party guests. They can be LGBTQ or otherwise. They can be living. They can be dead. Make them famous so we know who they are. Who would you pick and why? So my top dinner party guest would be Robert Downey Jr. I just adore everything he's done. I love everything that he's done on screen. I love the fact that he has had a absolutely coloured life. He seems to have come on the out of the side, the other side of adversity. He seems to just be an absolutely crazy mother, and I think it would just be great, great fun. My next guest would be Rudolf Nureyev. He was an absolute inspiration to me as a young queer dancer. I watched his videos endlessly of Le Bayadur. I did a, I did Le Bayadur for an examination of mine called the Solo Seal, which is an exam. This is the top RAD ballet exam that you can possibly take. Uh, and I watched endless, endless videos of him. My next guest would be 
I'm going to do somebody living who I adore and don't see enough of, and that would be Boy George, who I worked with on the musical Taboo, who I also think is somebody that has managed to have longevity and sustain and continues to develop and grow and push boundaries uh, and be self-reliant and self-inspiring and self-sufficient. And that is something that I really really admire and just for messiness the fourth person that i'd like to have on there is marilyn who is somebody that i have played in the and somebody who i follow on social media and also really admire but to be fair i just want to see george and marilyn on the same table and to see the disgrace of how that <laughs> it would just be an absolute horror show but Marilyn I love you too I mean you are if you listen to this podcast you are a huge inspiration to me also and my fifth and final it would probably be my mum because you know I am a mummy's boy I know that my mum would sit on that table and have no, no idea what was going on <laughs> or what it was. Or what, or, but, you know, in, 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 on a serious note, I'd give anything to have one more day with my mum, just one more day, and that would be a lovely, that would be a lovely thing. That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with John as much as I did. I love the fact he was so candid. Really appreciate that. If you would like to experience more Rainbow Joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening to me right now, and do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in as well. Thanks a million as ever to Juliet at Pineapple Audio Production for making everything so gorgeous and sparkly with the podcast. I will be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with another inspiration individual. Until then, from me, Nigel Mate, sending all the love and hoping that whatever you're up to, if it applies to you, you're having a gay old time. Enjoy. Enjoy.